Oh, hey there, folks. This is your host, Kate Gaffney, jumping on to let you know this is another shocking two-parter. I'm so grateful to our guest this week, Caitlin Bailey, for giving us her time. She is a writer, stand-up comic, and leader in the growing movement to decriminalize sex work. And we finally got our wish, y'all. We finally got to have the conversation with someone who is openly willing to talk about working in sex work and uh, the ups and the downs and all of the in-between and to talk about the history and what it's rooted in. And just, I learned so much and I had to confront some of my own prejudices and my own biases and my own, you know, preconceived ideas of what that work is. And you'll hear some of my line of questioning is, you know, leading based on my opinion. Uh, and I got to learn a lot. So yeah, I could have, I mean, Caitlin is just such a lovely, generous, wonderful human in life, but to get to know her like this was so fascinating and wonderful and triumphant and all of the, what other adjectives can I pick? She's the best. She's so funny. Go see her show, find her on all the things, um, go to her website. Uh, all of that information is in the show notes and you can find her uh, old prose podcast. Take a listen to that. You'll learn so much and go, or I just, I can, I am giddy at the thought of watching her one person show. I want to be front row for an hour and a half and learn all of the things. And you heard, you will hear she's so articulate and so smart. So it's just, I wanted to ask so many more things. Um, if you have questions for Caitlin, feel free to email us at service from hell podcast at gmail.com. We will pass those along. She is a, she's an educator on this. She doesn't identify as an educator, but she educated me. And also, uh, she does, she tours the country discussing these topics and this really hard conversation she's willing to have that a lot of people are not willing to come out of the shadows and talk about. She's trying to create visibility in the market. So if you have questions for her, please email us or find her on the socials. And she's not super active on Instagram, but on her website, if you fill out the contact information, she absolutely will get back in touch with you. So find out all of the things, go see her show. Tell her we sent you. Let's get on with the show. I want to not waste your time and I want to dive right in because I have 6,000 questions. So the only, Fantastic. um, I just want to get one second. Oh yeah. Yeah. I'm so sorry. No, you're uh, totally fine. Uh, oh, God, never mind. My person is on it. I just sometimes, so I, I'm, I run, I'm an Airbnb host and sometimes my guests get into a panic uh, because they, so I have a guest checking out and she's sending these panicked messages. That's like, how do I leave? And I'm like, just bye. leave the keys on the table, leave the door unlocked and like, let yourself out in the bye. world. They're like, where are you? And I'm like, leave the door unlocked. This is New York City. <laughs> you're, it's going to be fine. It's going to be fine. <laughs> Gonna be so fine. Where can I leave the keys? On the table. Where I just said. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they're like, <laughs> but there must be another way. Like, no, it's less safe for you to hide the keys in the hallway somewhere. It's way, way. <laughs> it's wild. So anyway. Thank you. Oh, you're so welcome. I'm so excited. Yeah. Okay, Caitlin. Me too. Okay. Um, if you don't have any questions, we're gonna get it going. No, um, I'm I'm good. We'll roll kay. with punches. You're listening to Service from Hell, a podcast featuring people that are currently in customer service positions or the lucky few that got out and all of the good, bad, and infinitely irritating things that go along with that work. I'm action and writer Kate Gaffney, and I'm uniquely qualified to discuss this as I used to work at a very busy and very popular comedy club in Los Angeles. And at least one of you listening right now has probably grabbed me and told me you were ready to order when I was running around like a crazy person. So let's eat. <laughs> 
I'd like to welcome our guest, Caitlin Bailey. Caitlin is a writer, stand-up comic, and leader in the growing movement to decriminalize sex work. She came out as a sex worker in 2015 with her critically acclaimed one-woman show, Contagious, which enjoyed sold-out performances and an extended run in multiple NYC theater festivals. Her second one-woman show, Whore's Eye View, is in development, y'all. We're going to talk about it. Bailey started the Oldest Profession podcast in 2017, focusing on old pros from history. The show is going into its fifth season in 2023, and having a podcast is so hard. Good job. Bailey has worked at the highest level of national politics since 2018 when she became the founding director of communications for the national advocacy organization fighting to decriminalize sex work. I'm going to cry. That's so amazing. Okay. She continues to consult with campaigns, organizations, and policymakers to decriminalize sex work around the world. In 2020, Caitlin Bailey founded Old Pros, a nonprofit media organization changing the status of sex workers in society. Old Pros produces content and events that bring people together and change people's minds about the oldest profession. Caitlin also represents a longstanding desire that all y'all have heard me talk about on this show forever to try and get someone that works in this world. I'm so excited to talk about it. That said, I better know Caitlin through mutual comedy friends because she is very funny and also is a comic and this insane industry. And also she has such a powerful presence in the advocacy community. I am so honored to have her here and y'all are going to love her. So that said, Caitlin, how stoked are you for your newest one person show? How hard is it to perform in NYC? What keeps you pushing? Tell us all the things. I'm so excited to be here, Kate. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. And for for our purposes at the show, I do want to say thank you so much for reading my uh, my bio. Uh, I feel very uh, impressive. You are impressive. Uh, but I also worked um, as a Starbucks barista and uh, a waiter here in New York for years and years and years, which I can say was objectively worse in every imaginable way <laughs> than being a sex worker, which is also part of the service industry. Uh, yeah. Holy so cute. that's my, yeah, thank you. Thank I, you for having me. Your, your, your first question was uh, how stoked am I about the, the one woman show? I am uh, so stoked, uh, the most stoked. I've been working on this show for five years and I got it, I got it on its feet for the first time in January of 2020 which I'm sure you can imagine was not the best time uh, to be Why? ready Why? Uh, to bring a show on the road. I, there's some stuff happened oh, right okay. here that I'm was sorry. bad for just you. group events. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah just yeah. So a personal tragedy of the global <laughs> pandemic. Um, yeah, but, I, but I'm, I'm so excited. We have dates. Uh, we have a, a development run at the Tank Theater starting April 26th for a couple of weeks. We're going to have five shows. And then I'm bringing the show to San Francisco, May 25th, uh, for the uh, Sex Worker Arts Festival, which is a, a very big deal. And then we, we hope to be bringing it really all over the country um, after that. So, you know, please... Please come see uh, Whore's Eye View can you, uh, if, you, if you get a chance. Can you give us like a yeah. quick, just what will people totally. experience? Yeah, what is Whore's Eye View? That's a, that's a great question. <laughs> um, so it's a combination stand-up comedy special, history lecture, and personal storytelling one-woman show where I cover 10,000 years of history from a sex worker's perspective. I am reacting big time. And I also talk time. a lot about my dad. So both, both of those things. <laughs> Not uh, not related, but maybe we'll see. Um, yeah, I I love workers and soldiers. There's a long history there. <laughs> I get into it. Um, I think of Eddie Izzard comes to mind. I think of her, and I think of her, yeah. her like, oh, I, she may have changed her name. I'm so sorry if she has changed. No, it. I don't think so. I think Eddie Izzard is, is using she her pronouns, but I think uh, still still using the Eddie. brand the okay. brand they built. Yeah. Okay. And, and, I, and Dress to Kill was like one of a formative 
uh, stand-up comedy special for me. And John Larajamo's uh, history special is another another one. Um, Margaret Cho's done some great. I mean, yeah, there's there comics doing one-person shows. Um, I think is a really great evolution of uh, the art form. I don't. I totally agree. And dipping into history, which makes it so interesting. And ooh, I can't wait. Okay, so you said the Tank Theater. Then you're coming to San Francisco. Where can people? At the end, we'll do all your socials and stuff. But if you, sure. where can people, if they want to come see it, when, when are, when is it on its feet? Sure. So uh, the show will be ready, uh, really April, April 26th, where we're doing the the Tank Run. Um, if you're looking for, uh, you know, tickets or where you can see the show, because we'll keep adding dates, then you can go to horseeyeview.com or you can join our email list at oldprosonline.org, which lists all of our events, including Horse Eye View, but we also do variety shows and I speak at conferences and colleges and stuff like that. So I love it. Okay. Yeah, so this is, going on. we're still in our appetizer section and I still want to get to know you because we'll get the specific questions about all the craziness in the next section, but I just want to pick a little further. So political activism is not something mm-hmm. that is uh, easy, uh, but my goodness, is it necessary? So what got you into that world? Like what made you care? Oof. Um, so I, I've always been a pretty politically involved person. Um, I joined uh, a group called Youth Voice Raleigh when I was in in middle school. And it was a group that was about, we really wanted as children, right, as legal minors, the ability to advocate for ourselves. We didn't want parents, teachers, or politicians speaking on our behalf uh, because they had decided to do abstinence-only education. And at that point in time, we were still uh, giving people under the age of 18 the death penalty. So we had lots of complaints about uh, sort of our, our rights and really wanted to um, to advocate for ourselves. And then in, in high school, I got super involved in Planned Parenthood. Um, I, I grew up in the Bible Belt, uh, you know, North Carolina on military bases. And, and so abstinence-only and... Uh, really a lot of misinformation about women's bodies specifically was an activating moment for me. So I did a lot of volunteer work for them. Um, And then I went to college. I majored in history and realized that things had been like really fucked up for a really long time. Graduated from college. And my very first job uh, was working as a canvas director for a progressive political consulting firm. So any folks that are listening that live in cities, um, if you've ever had somebody sort of like stop you on the sidewalk, like, hey, do you have a minute for, you know, the ACLU or Planned Parenthood or something like that? My job was to sort of manage uh, those folks in, in 12 cities across the country for about two years. I burnt out very, very quickly. Uh, Twenty-two. There's a reason that 22-year-olds shouldn't be bosses. Um, <laughs> it's not because they're not smart. It's because they don't have the emotional regulatory. So I was working like 120 hours a week and like super sleep deprived and like making banana pants choices. Yeah, just, yeah, if you're doing the math, it's not, it doesn't work. You can't, you can't do that and also sleep. Um, When people are like, how bad was it? I was like, I gained 20 pounds while like courting an Adderall addiction, which is very challenging. (laughs) thing to do um as a with a human body uh so yeah um burnt out uh like a firework um and that's when I got into stand-up comedy and so stand-up comedy really felt like an answer for me because it created an opportunity for me to feel like I wasn't part of the problem this is way way back before we got super racist 
um, and and rapey as a as a subculture. But but at the time, I was like, I don't want to be a part of the problem. I would like to make people laugh in basements and feel good about, about myself uh, as a contributor. And I and I spent almost a decade uh, traveling all over the country. I produced the uh, Pink Collar and the Cake Comedy Tour, which is you know all women group. We we toured we toured the country. It was in my capacity as a stand-up comic that I came out as a sex worker. Um, I wrote, you know, Contagious, which was uh, which was really an amazing experience. And then um, in 2018, Donald Trump signed SESTA FOSTA into law, and that is that's a federal law. Um, it stands for Stop Enabling Sex Trafficking and Fight Online Sex Trafficking Act. You might remember this. Amy Schumer was a spokesperson for it, uh, shockingly. Yeah, thinking that, uh, yeah, in a, a, a disgusting commercial with full of misinformation. And so for the, I don't know, 19th time in our country's history, we were in, amidst uh, a moral sex panic that is very much still ongoing. And this was a moment when Backpage was seized by the FBI, Craigslist erotic services went away, Rent Boy was seized, and all of the places, all of the online platforms that sex workers had been using to schedule and screen their clients, to, to exchange um, harm reduction and safety tips with one another, all of that went away overnight. And so at that point, I was engaged in sex work uh, for the second time in my life. Uh, not like the second incident, for the second like period of time. There was more than, it'd be weird if I made this my <laughs> career. And I was like, I had two appointments. <laughs> Um, <laughs> but I was doing sex work to like many people that had come before me to subsidize my, my work in stand-up comedy. And so when that law happened, I saw the devastating impact that it had. And more importantly, for our purposes, I saw the absolute lack of, uh, fucks given amongst my, so-called free speech advocate peers in stand-up comedy. No one cared, right? Amy Schumer was the spokesperson for the law that I believe represents an existential threat to freedom of speech, freedom of expression on the internet, right? And so all of the folks that I was hanging out with, all of these stand-up comics that were, you know, considering themselves like the last bastion of free expression, I was like, I see your dick jokes and I raise you people that suck dick for a living. It's so, you know, um, I think we're doing a harder thing. Um, I think that sex workers have been, you know, I, I call it the oldest profession. Um, it's certainly the oldest stigma. And I believe that if we want to live in a free society, then we have to remove laws that govern uh, where people go, what they wear, who they associate with, and who they have sex with, which is what criminalizing prostitution is. I I could talk to you for six fucking hours. I'm going to have you back so many times. So I just want to jump in because the Sesta Foster stuff is uh, there. I, we can't spend the whole time on that, but I do want people to know you did such a good job summarizing it. There is a Pornhub documentary that is on Netflix currently that addresses some of that. And they, they do interview sex workers and they there's, I don't want to get, I know it's a problematic documentary for, for some reasons, Whatever. but it does talk about Sesta Foster in a way that you can understand yeah. how it actually made it more dangerous for sex workers yes. and how a lot of them had to go back to pimps and a lot of them had to go back to street yep. work. 
which is yeah. enormously dangerous. Go ahead. I think I think this is a really important point for for listeners to understand. Pimps are one hundred percent the product of criminalization. Without criminalization, pimps, third party managers do not have a role to play in this economy. None. Right? So we didn't we did not criminalize prostitution in this country until the progressive era, right? And so in, until the early nineteen teens. Right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's your face is how wow. most people respond. So before the criminalization of prostitution, the overwhelming majority of sex work happened in female-run and often female-owned brothels, right? So madams had a role to play in this economy. But once we started, uh, once we shuttered the brothels, it happened at different times in different places, but uh, definitely happened after 1917, which is when we got involved in World War One, and we thought that a way to control STIs was to uh, corral all of the sex workers, which was not very effective. But we, we shuttered the brothels um, really across the country between 1910 and 1917, and we started arresting uh, women on the suspicion of promiscuity, again, to protect our soldiers from venereal disease. When that happened, it became impossible for sex workers to connect with clients, right, in brothels or in established places that's when we started depending on men to go and procure clients for us because we could not engage in public space. We could not be caught soliciting. We no longer had established places that people knew that people knew to go to. So that's when this pimp figure enters the sex work economy. There really wasn't a place for that guy uh, before the criminalization or after Backpage, Craigslist Erotic Services, all of these internet providers made it possible for sex workers to directly connect with their clients without a potentially exploitative third-party person. And so do you think that with the criminalization piece of it, do you, what is this? Because I know I'm, I don't want to step on the toes of your show because I know your show deals with some of this. So I don't want to ask you too many more questions about the details. It's my, fa it's literally my favorite topic. I, so let's just assume okay. that your listeners will not listen to my show. Let's, let's do all of it. Okay. Yay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so in the, so when that, uh, the madams were sort of taken out of the, mm -hmm. of the role of procuring sex, what was the role? So the guys would act, I mean, now in what we would use in current language as pimps, they would go out and sure. say, Hey man, if you want to have sex with these women, here's, I can take you to them. Is that what it was? Yes. Yeah, so this so concierges, cab drivers, men that had kind of a public facing role that like tourists or travelers would ask for information started to be the person connecting, you know, clients and providers. Okay. As opposed to having like an established brothel, and I think it's important to say this that brothel owners uh, specifically madams, were like some of the largest landowners in the West. Like this is an area where female entrepreneurs really thrived until criminalization. So like Lulu White in New Orleans becomes a millionaire. The Everly sisters in Chicago. Like there's just all of these examples of these entrepreneurial, philanthropic, often single women who build thriving, successful businesses until uh, a moral sex panic wipes that entire economy further underground, right? Which empowers a criminal element and empowers men behaving badly, including the police who become, of course, extra predatory. Caitlin, uh, 
That's not I, possible. What are you talking Listen, about? You I talk to sex workers throughout history. Cops have always been our mm-hmm. top predator, right? Yeah. That's, yeah. that's, yeah. So, okay, so when, oh, I <laughs> narrow it down, Kate. Okay, the moral sex panic that creates this interruption in, in the flow of what was happening. Mm-hmm. To the person, if I'm a lay person and I say, mm-hmm. yeah, but statistically we know, you know, a lot of women and men in porn have been molested or a lot of women and men who go into sex work have been molested or whatever. What do sure. you say to... Like, because their argument that I have heard, which I don't sure, know how to sure. feel about, is that it, that is actually exploitation. Like, giving them this opportunity sure. is exploitation. Um, well, so, yeah, what, that's weird. What do you uh, say for, to that? Uh, my, my first instinct, and this is, you know, uh, this is probably how I would talk about it after a couple of drinks, right? <laughs> is like, we don't know shit uh, about the statistics of sex work because it's impossible to get good numbers about a stigmatized and criminalized class. And what we do actually know is that uh, a huge proportion of uh, women and really people of all genders have been sexually exploited at some point in their life. So like if you interviewed nurses or waiters or teachers or C-suite people, there's just a lot of child sexual exploitation. But what we've done as a society is we've turned prostitution into this symbol of exploitation. Um, and we've used it to sort of scapegoat all of our anxieties about the very real violence and the very real exploitation that is actually very uncomfortably happening all around us all of the time. All of right? the time. So, all of, the, all of time. the time. So, you know, I like to use the this personal example, and this is something that I, I really get into in, in the one woman show, is my father joined the army at 17 years old and was sent uh, to kill people in the Dominican Republic and Vietnam and Desert Shield, Desert Storm in in Kuwait. So if you want to talk about violence and exploitation and what it means to exploit people, I am so down for that conversation, but I want to be in a shared reality where asking people to murder people for money is like maybe worse <laughs> than making people uh, come, like just like on the margins. Oh, okay. And then uh, you're so fucking articulate. It's wild. I'm not surprised at all. <laughs> this is so awesome. Okay. Then I have one more question. Okay. So the argument that I hear often and that is presented yeah. in this um, documentary is the trans community that chooses to get into sex work is often oh, you you put your finger up yep you no, tell no, go ahead. so there yeah, sorry, there's that's... there's I've heard two arguments that it's well they're more protected because without this a lot of the trans community could not find other work because this is where they are openly accepted then I have heard that it is again they love this word um, exploitation of what is deemed a uh, a class of people suffering this is what I've heard sure. Can you speak to those points, so, please? Yeah, I, I absolutely. All labor, all of it, all every form of labor, right? So like, take a second, think about like six different kinds of labor, right? All of it exists on the spectrum of choice, circumstance, and coercion, right? Like there are absolutely people out there that choose uh, to be waiters, right? They love hospitality, they're trust fund kids, they like the social element or whatever. And there are people that are being grossly underpaid by a verbally abusive, sexually exploitative manager and paid $2 an hour and also have like 
their tips confiscated. And there are people whose passport is being held by the proprietor of the restaurant and they are uh, beaten if they uh, show up late or complain about the fact that their their wages are being, uh, you know, stolen, taken. Right. All of those exist in just the food and bev industry, right? You can say the same thing about uh, mining, agriculture, textile work, domestic labor. So again, there is so much exploitation happening in the labor market to, to turn sex work into a symbol of that blinds us to that exploitation. And it also really, I think, perverts or obscures what we mean by exploitation. So what I will say is that folks in the LGBTQ plus folks, um, including really especially trans women, are overrepresented in sex work because they are discriminated against in other labor sectors, right? So are there trans women engaging in sex work who would really rather be doing something else? Absolutely. Absolutely. But you can say the same thing about people waiting tables. Are there cis women that are participating in sex work who would really rather be doing something else? Absolutely. Absolutely. You can say the same thing about babysitting. (laughs) So, you know, I think it's important for us to get really clear about what we're actually talking about so that we can get together and work towards a future where there is less exploitation and not confuse that with a future where there's like less sexual expression, which is something that we actually don't want to be working towards. Mm. Mm. Ooh, girl, I see why you speak at colleges and shit. You, wow. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. So before we move on to the section where we hear all about your uh, employment history, which I promise folks we're going to get to, but I know everyone is so engaged in this part anyway. When you, so if someone comes to you that is deeply offended by the work, by the conversation and takes the sort of, especially cause you're from the Bible belt, like takes the moral high ground of, you know, uh, we just have to eliminate it altogether. What do you, and by it, I just mean like generalized sex work. What would be, do you have a chambered response? Yeah. I mean, most people that come to this, so there, there are people that just hate sex workers, right? They, you know, serial killers, serial rapists, predators, uh, deep misogynists, right? They're like, sex workers are gross and they should be eliminated from the face of the earth, right? But those are not people who present themselves as having the moral high ground uh, or doing this for religious reasons, right? Those folks are often coming at this from a place of we really want to help, right, people who are in a bad situation. And so what I would say to that is if you are asking yourself the question, uh, what would Jesus do? Well, then you can look at the Bible and see that he spent a lot of time chilling with sex workers <laughs> in a non-judgmental, open-hearted way, and that was fine. Probably a way that Jesus would not uh, want to, quote-unquote, help sex workers would be to send armed SWAT teams into the places where they were living and working, which is what so much of our, quote-unquote, anti-trafficking work looks like. And it's really, really hard to help people that you're hunting. And so I think it's really important for folks that are engaged in charitable work or are interested in improving the lives and expanding 
choices of people that engage in this work, that's incredible. We should keep doing that. We should keep providing shelter, counseling, free services, right? You know, it's like healthcare, housing, childcare. All of that are anti-trafficking initiatives. But what we shouldn't do is make those services dependent on being arrested or in giving up someone's livelihood while they're transitioning to some other kind of work. So, so many of these quote unquote anti-trafficking groups are more interested in ending prostitution than they are in helping people uh, establish the building blocks that we all need to move our lives forward. And the reality is that the fastest way to trap somebody in a life of prostitution is to arrest them for it because it makes it that much harder for them to get another job, secure housing, or do any of the things that you would need to do to get out of that industry. And I, that's a, such a sentient point that I hadn't thought of because now they have a record. And if you have a record, right. then it's that impossible. Makes everything harder. Wow. I did not. And it's interesting because, it, you know, not to, we'll, we'll get funny folks, but the, <laughs> the abortion parallel is so, is Absolutely. so, I mean, because you've just there, said, go ahead. Yeah. There's, there's nothing that you can do, right? We, we know that criminalizing abortion does not end or reduce the number of abortions. It only makes it less safe. The same can be true of sex work. This is not a problem that we can arrest our way out of. You are never going to effectively suppress or penalize or eradicate something older than money. What you can do is make it less safe, less comfortable for the people engaged in that work. But that doesn't meet any of our shared stated values. That does not make the work safer. That does not reduce violence or exploitation in the sex trade. It exasperates all of that by pushing the entire industry further underground. And we know what prohibition does to markets. It does not make them safer. That's a thousand percent true. And so for because of the work that you do as far as advocating for sex workers, do you ever get sex workers coming to you saying, hey, I'm in a really dangerous situation and I need help to get out? We don't we don't get a ton of that uh, because we're pretty explicit that Old Pros is not a service provider, right? We you know we we don't have any resources available for folks in trouble, but there are a ton of sex worker led organizations that do do that work. Uh, Lisa Strada comes to mind. Swap Behind Bars is another great example, and one of the most effective anti-trafficking um, groups out there, the Freedom Network, is another great resource connector for folks that are, are, are looking for um, shelter or legal services. The Sex Worker Project at Urban Justice Center here in New York is, is another one. So there is a network of sex worker-led anti-trafficking groups that provide services to people in trouble. And one of the, the cool things that distinguishes these groups from, you know, like religiously motivated groups or groups that work with law enforcement is that there's no barrier to access. You don't have to be arrested. You don't have to agree to stop doing sex work. You just have to tell these organizations what the problem is, and then they're going to try to help you. You may have different, different services are available at different places at different times. As I'm sure you can imagine, sex worker-led organizations are chronically underfunded. Of course. Um, but sex workers are in some of the best positions to help people in trouble because they understand where folks are coming from, regardless of where they're at on that choice, circumstance, coercion spectrum. 
Okay. I love that. And then have you, because of the work that you do, because there is so much resistance socially to helping and being visible, have you been doxxed? Have people come after you? Have you been scared? I really, I really haven't. One of the big problems that we deal with at Old Pros is being uh, shadow banned or having um, our emails put to people's spam because we were talking about, you know, uh, sex work and we're talking about the decriminalization of prostitution and the name of the show is Whore's Eye View. These are all top spam filter and, and all of these tech platforms are uniquely motivated, right, in the aftermath of SESTA-FOSTA to do a really uh, overbroad suppression, right? It doesn't matter that we're not selling sexual services. If we have the word sex in our email, then we can see on our end, right, that we have like a 4% open rate as opposed to our more standard 50% open rate, which is what we normally get. So we have to do a lot of self-censorship and a lot of... Uh, you know, it, it, it's a moving target, right? The algorithm is getting updated all of the time. So we're playing we're playing games on social platforms to try to avoid being shadow banned. Um, but we haven't, we're very lucky at Old Pros that so far we have attracted an overwhelmingly supportive audience that's really interested in the work that we do and really interested in educating themselves and others about this issue and why it matters. And that I think is one of the, the big things that we do at Old Pros, and this is my, you know, thesis um, as a, a, you know, relatively privileged uh, upper middle class white woman, the criminalization of, of sex work is, it has an impact on women's ability to participate in public spaces. And historically, when places say they are cracking down on prostitution, what they are actually doing is cracking down on women in public. And I think a really good example of this is the same month that Donald Trump signed SESTA-FOSTA into law, there was a very nice restaurant on the Upper East Side here in Manhattan that decided to stop serving single women at their bar because they didn't want whores in their restaurant. So if you are a single woman and you entered this establishment, they would seat you at a table. You were not allowed to sit at the bar and have a drink like a normal person. And all of this was done in the name of suppressing sex work. And so that's what I want listeners who have never engaged in this work, who, could not, who cannot imagine themselves engaging in this work to understand is that when push comes to shove, it's actually impossible to prove that you're not a whore and that these laws that we're writing that suppress sex work is really suppressing women expressing themselves, right? In the immediate aftermath of SESTA-FOSTA, Instagram shadow banned hashtag women because they were afraid of being in violation of this law. So it's really, really important if we want to create a society where people of all genders are able to move freely, you know, engage with who they want on their own terms, it's important that we let go of this very old stigma that has done nothing uh, to help prevent violence against women, but has done a lot to put women in really bad, desperate situations. Oh, I want to keep talking about this, but we're going to get to your jobs. Okay, well, I'm just going to have to have you come back on and talk all about this because Mm -hmm. this is so much, uh, this is fascinating for me. Um, One more, just in this intro section to bring it back to you. So how hard is it to perform in NYC and find theater space? And like when you've done these one person shows before, like how do you, how do you navigate that world? 
That, yeah, that's a really great question. I uh, Right now, I'm developing my show at The Tank, which is um, a really incredible not-for-profit theater. And their mission is to just make free stage time available to artists who need it. So they produce like a thousand shows a year, which if you're doing the math, that's like more than two a day. Uh, and so, yeah, they have they have so many shows that come in and out of their 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 spaces. It's where I developed Contagious, so I already had a relationship with them, and they they're incredible. In terms of the next step, I. I don't really know the answer to that. You know, I'm inviting as many people as I can. I'm interested in bringing the show to as many places as possible. I'm, you know, emailing artistic directors. I'm reaching out to uh, to funders. You know, I'm 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 doing the things, but I'm very much learning what it means to self-produce a theater production here in New York, which is really different than just pursuing stage time as a comic, right? Which you can do in sort of like 10 minute increments. Like I, I need the show, I need the, the showroom for 90 minutes, right? Which is a really different ask. Um, you can't take that to a comedy club. Um, <laughs> so, so yeah, I have, I have a lot of experience pursuing stage time. I feel very comfortable talking to, to different kinds of audiences and different kinds of places. But this is very much another learning opportunity. The only thing I know for sure is that I don't want to do too many festivals again because that was that 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 felt pretty exploitative that was a situation where i was like the the math here isn't isn't mathing super good <laughs> do you know about this yeah you know, well so like, i was interested in edinburgh and i've since pulled back because i did the math and it was thirty five thousand dollars if i were all in and i was like that's yeah. so much money and then you're yeah and you're and then the, the math gets sadder when you're like oh and the maximum ROI, if I sell out every seat every night, is like five grand. Like it's not, so yeah. So both the both theater festivals that I did, which really like they're doing their best, right? Like no no one in theater is making too much money, right? It's just that you end up sort of creating a system that like feeds on the the artists, right? Right, exactly. And so it's not it's a it's a bad system. So. They had, uh, you know, entry fees. They had uh, mandated costs uh, from like advertising to the people that you needed to hire to, uh, you know, participation fees, all of that. And they covered sort of no costs, right? Like, you know, there's no housing provided. There's no stipend. There's no, there's no nothing. And uh, the space itself is, you know, the bo- both spaces that I, you know, 60 people maximum, at, you know, I don't remember what the ticket costs were, but, you know, not hugely expensive. And the festival is taking a pretty healthy chunk on the, of that, in addition to all of the money that you paid for the privilege of participating. So we sold out every Contagious show and lost money in both festivals. So for Whore's Eye View, since it felt like I was self-producing anyway... We're just self-producing this, so we're not we're not cutting a festival in to <laughs> into your uh, profits, to the money that we yeah. might make. Yeah, profits is probably too strong a word. Loose, but we're not, yeah, yeah, yeah. The <laughs> revenue, whatever the the money that is the money that that comes in. Wow. So oh. yeah, yeah. Oh. Well, I, I have lots of questions, but we'll I'll ask you off the mic. Okay. Well, well, my my advice for you. So what I will say to young artists is that. Festivals are, I would not have the tools that I am using now to self-produce Whore's Eye View had I not done Contagious through the festivals that I did. 
So it can be a great networking opportunity. It can be a really great learning opportunity. It's a, a full immersion, which I think is really important for artists to like put themselves in a situation where that's really all they're doing. But um, I think it's important for folks to do the math before going in and not confuse these performance opportunities with income, <laughs> uh, an opportunity to make money. Yeah, because that's not that's not what they do. Good to know. Thank you so much. Okay, well, folks, we hope you enjoyed your apps. We're gonna move on to the entrees after a quick break. Thank you folks so much for listening. That was part one of two with the absolutely lovely, authentic, and utterly delightful Caitlin Bailey. Caitlin's website is K-A-Y-T-L-I-N-B-A-I-L-E-Y.com. That's CaitlinBailey.com. You can sign up for her mailing list there and find out where she's going to be coming to a city near you with her show. If you live in New York, it's going to be happening a lot sooner for you in the next handful of weeks. So please go to her website and get tickets and do all of the things. You can also get in touch with her to speak at your events or your school or your wherever. She tours the country doing that as well. And so, yeah, reach out to her. Uh, if you have questions for Caitlin, feel free to reach out to us as well. You can send us an email to servicefromhillpodcast at gmail.com. We love hearing from you always. And also we will forward along your info to Caitlin if you do not get in touch with her directly. So yeah, join us for part two next week where we get into it. And she talks about the difference between working as a barista versus working in sex work. Those are different things and one is better than the other and it's not the one you think so we will see y'all next week thank you folks so much for listening good night (laughs) 